The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to pick back up our series in Luke. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. We have a beefy section this morning. It's Luke 10, 1 through 24. So Luke will be on the right hand side of your Bible in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to start in the big number 10. And I say we because um, one of the privileges of preaching is we're in a preaching cohort with you guys. So River of Grace, uh, King's Cross, and another church called Christ Community, we're preaching through the book of Luke together uh, over the course of two years. So I'm going to read the passage kind of as we go throughout. But to start, I'm going to read Luke 10, 19 through 20 as we consider joyful mission. And then I'm going to pray. And we'll get right into it. So Luke chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples who just came back from a mission trip. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Our good Father, we seek you and your strength continually. We pray with the psalmist, gladden our souls because we lift them up to you. And as we hear the words of Christ uh, to be on joyful mission, would you help us to experience that joy from your spirit and to live on joyful mission together here in whatever town or community we live in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you noticed how happy workers are at Trader Joe's? It's almost uncanny. Sometimes you feel like you're in the Truman Show. They're like, howdy, neighbor. And you're like, oh, just here to grab some oranges and mandarin orange chicken. But it seems like they have a genuine happiness to help you find whatever you're looking for or to talk about your weekend plans if you're checking out at the cash register. Uh, I worked at Trader Joe's for about five years. And I've reflected on my experience at TJ's. And there is a genuine buzz among the workers. They call them the crew members. There's a genuine buzz among the crew members about the new products that are coming out. Um, One thing's for sure, if any of you ever work for Trader Joe's, you will do a lot of eating and drinking and sampling as an employee there. Uh, It's a pretty simple strategy. So you'll clock into work. And inevitably, whatever season you're in, a new product or a popular old product will come back in season. And some, at some point during your shift, someone will take a huge batch of whatever that product is, go back, cook it, prep it, do whatever. And during your shift, you're going to go back to a feast of samples, eat, drink the free coffee, and then head back out. And your job is very simple. Basically, sell what you just enjoyed. So it's a pretty straightforward uh, business model. At TJ's, joy in the product fuels the sales. And I think one of their key secrets to success is, of course, they're a business. They want to make money. They keep track of that. But they kind of get after sales in a roundabout way. They focus on tasty food and drink and building a community around that. And by focusing on the uh, (laughs) tasty food and drink, Uh, They build a culture of joy, and that boosts sales. 
The opposite is also true. I'm sure most of us have worked jobs that have focused primarily on sales. And over time, you forget what you're actually selling about the product or whatever service you're giving for your community, and it could become a miserable job. Well, the same principle applies to Christian mission. When we focus on the joy of belonging to Jesus, the mission of sharing comes with somewhat ease. Uh, but when we focus on sharing over and above enjoying belonging to Jesus, the mission becomes a joyless obligation. So in today's passage, Luke 10, 1 through 24, we're going to see that the joy of salvation gives us strength for the mission. And by salvation, I mean belonging to Jesus. The joy of belonging to Jesus gives us strength for the mission. And as we go through these verses, we'll see there's kind of four characteristics of mission for Jesus. It's prayerful mission, it's peaceful mission, it's powerful mission, and finally, and most importantly, it's joyful mission. Uh, before we dive in, I personally find it helpful whenever we talk about the mission of the church to define what we're talking about. So I'm going to give you a big picture uh, mission from someone who's dead and a lot smarter than me, and then I'll give you kind of a street-level uh, mission that we could lay a hold of. So if we could pull up this uh, quote, I think it's after the main point. There's a stern-looking man, not that one. It's a black and white picture. There he is, Herman. Bless you, Herman. Well, this is God's mission, according to this Dutch theologian, Herman Bovink. And as we st talk about joyful mission, I promise you he's experiencing a lot of joy on the inside. For some reason, I, I don't know, like when people started smiling in pictures, but he wasn't in that era. So this is God's big picture mission. God the Father has reconciled his created but fallen world through the death of his son and renews it into a kingdom of God by his spirit. So what is God's mission in Manchester and whatever town you live in? God is reconciling people to himself through the death of his son, and he's renewing your city, your town through the Holy Spirit. So that's big picture mission. And how we participate in that is we follow Jesus. Jesus is the one who reconciles and renews people. So we follow Jesus in every single area of life, and we help others to do the same. So that's discipleship. So that's our mission of the church. And it's supposed to be marked by these four things, prayer, peace, power, and joy. So let's look at verses one through four and consider prayerful mission. I'll read those verses for us. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsacks, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Those words might be familiar if you've been tracking with the series so far. It's because earlier Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, the apostles, on a very similar mission. And now it expands to this group, uh, this nameless group of 72 people who are going out two by two on mission to the towns that Jesus is about to go to. We see here that mission isn't just reserved for the, the few apostles or the pastors or the deacons, but mission really is the mission for the whole church. And as they go on this mission, it's a really hard mission. 
We're faced with discouragement. He says, there's a lot of work to do. There's a huge harvest, but there's only a few of you. Uh, we're faced with danger. He's saying, he's saying, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Doesn't sound really fun. You're vulnerable. And then he says, don't bring a ton with you. This is going to be a mission of daily dependence on me. And if you're anything like me, that's really hard to hear. If you want to be self-reliant and strong in and of yourself, Jesus is saying, every single day on mission, I want you to depend on me. So what do you do with all this, this hardship in mission? Jesus' answer strikes us. He says, start with prayer. Daily mission starts with prayer. In verse 2, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So don't start recruiting, not yet, but therefore pray. Pray earnestly, heartfelt prayer to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the place, the starting place for mission and reconciliation and renewal in your community is prayer. Uh, sometimes I can be totally overwhelmed by reaching the lost. It's like a numberless, uh, a faceless group of people that I have to reach. Well, one, notice it's the church reaching the lost, uh, church reaching the lost. Uh, but instead of being overwhelmed by, by this big group, why don't you focus on one person? That has helped me at River of Grace. We often ask the question, who's your one? Um, so maybe, maybe think of one person, a neighbor or a family or a friend who you can pray for daily. Commit to a month of prayer for them, that God would renew them and open up opportunities to serve them and love them well. So mission starts with prayer. And as we pray, one of the beautiful things about prayer is that as we pray, God doesn't only, uh, not only starts to do things around us, he starts to do things in us. So as we pray for the Lord of the harvest to send workers— God starts renewing our own hearts. First, when we pray to the Lord, to the ruler of the harvest, we're recognizing that the mission, all of it, is in his hands. Your mission here at King's Cross in Manchester is in God's hands. So this cultivates in us a posture of dependent trust. Uh, two of my best friends are brothers, uh, Brad and Keith Kresge, the real salt of the earth men. They're out in Michigan. They're dairy farmers. Uh, and I remember I grew up in the suburbs and I lived in the city uh, for a while. And it was just a cultural, immersive experience for me going to their farm one spring break in college and just learning about life there. And as I keep up with the Kresge's, I hear about the different seasons of farming life and especially the grind of summer uh, of plant, uh, of harvesting all this hay that they need to get for their cows. Um, and I just think about the little Kresge boys. Let's say they're eight and 10, Brad and Keith. And their dad says, all right, get up, boys. We have to go out and we have to get this harvest. And we're going to work so that we can feed our cows and support our life and support the, our loved ones. Imagine those two little kids wringing their hands and saying like, oh, no, dad, I don't know if the hay got wet. I don't know if they're checking the weather app when they're 8 and 10 years old and saying, I don't know, it might get mildewy and then we can't do it. Can we get it in time? I don't know if we have the strength. No, their only job was trusting their dad and doing the assignment he gave them. In a similar fashion, we're like those kids on the farm and our father, God, is the Lord of the harvest. He's saying, join me in the work. This is all in my hands. 
the weather, the seasons, the timing of this all. I'm the Lord of the harvest. As we pray also to the Lord of the harvest, we kind of gain a, a gospel optimism. Uh, I don't know if you're your personality, uh, whether you're more pessimistic or optimistic. Uh, but when it comes to the mission of God, despite all that's up against Jesus and his kingdom advancing, we should have a healthy optimism. We're told that the harvest is plentiful. At one point when the apostle Paul, who is a missionary in the early church, he's going to a city, one of the encouragements that God gave the apostle Paul was, I have many men, women, and children in this city, Paul, who I'm calling to myself. Go find them. And so as we pray to the Lord of the harvest, uh, it's, not, it's not just one or two people who are going to be brought into the kingdom as sons and daughters, but there's a whole harvest that's to be brought in. And so as we pray on mission, God begins to create in us an optimism, a trust in him that he's got this all under control. The starting place for daily mission is prayer. Um, I know... Jacob just preached uh, a couple sermons on how to use the daily office. Is that right? Okay, I have yet to listen to them. Uh, but this is a beautiful resource. Jacob gave it to me a couple weeks ago, and I started doing sometimes the short morning office, sometimes the longer one. Um, and I love the prayer for mission in this. And I'm just going to read it for us. Uh, it moves me every time I pray it. Lord Jesus. You stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the, uh, do not know you to the knowledge and love of you, for the honor of your name. I mean, what's beautiful about that is that's meant to be a daily prayer. If you're tracking with the daily office here, that's a daily prayer we're praying as we're on mission. So our starting place is prayer, but our mission is also supposed to be characterized by peace. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. Jesus continues, Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. King Jesus himself came on peacemaking mission. He stepped into a hostile world where people were hostile to their creator and to one another. And he came to reconcile them through the cross. Uh, if we could pull it up here, I think Paul puts it beautifully in Ephesians 2. He says, but now in Christ Jesus... You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus himself is our peace. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jesus himself is our peace. At his birth and incarnation, the angels declared, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In Jesus' life and his ministry on earth, he spoke peace to those he healed and forgave. In his death, he brings peace 
between us and God by removing the judgment we deserve and peace between one another. And after Jesus resurrected, three times it says in the Gospel of John, he says to his disciples, his discouraged, fearful disciples, he says, peace be with you. And so it's a natural overflow that the king of peace would send out missionaries wherever they go who are ministers of peace. We see the disciples brought words of peace as they entered a household. They would say, the kingdom of God is near. Jesus, the Messiah, is bringing peace between you and your neighbors and God and you. So peace to this house. And they came along with works of peace. They were there healing any ailments in the houses they were going to. They didn't add to the hostility. They didn't go about uh, condemning, but they went around mending and restoring people as they joined them to Jesus. And the context for this piece is amazing. It's table fellowship. It's going to the dining table. It kind of seems weird as you talk about mission that Jesus over and over again here emphasizes, hey, whatever they set before you, eat that. That's your wages for your work. And enjoy table fellowship with whoever hosts you. Uh, Table fellowship or breaking bread or sharing a meal together is the context for peace in God's kingdom. God loves eating with his people from the beginning, from the garden, all the way to the kingdom that will... uh, Uh, be established when Jesus returns. And there's something dignifying here. As we love our neighbors, one way we can love and dignify our neighbors is by receiving the food that they give us, Uh, even if you don't necessarily like that food. Uh, If you're going to have a severe allergic reaction, that's okay to say, I can't eat that. Can I eat a little bit of this? Um, But it goes beyond food. Just receiving help from your neighbors is a way to dignify and honor them in a world that tears others down. And so we're supposed to be on mission, bringing Christ's peace to a broken world. That might call to mind Jesus' words, though, as we talk about a mission of peace. Uh, He says elsewhere, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So how can we kind of reconcile those words? Jesus is saying, I didn't come to bring peace. And here he's saying, go to houses and speak peace. Well, here's the paradox of Jesus' mission. He brings peace to every single person who humbly repents, but warns of judgment to the proud and to the self-righteous. And kind of on a spiritual plane, Jesus brings peace to us by destroying the works of the devil and putting death to death. And that's kind of where Jesus goes next in verses 11 through 19. We see powerful mission. We're called on powerful mission. I'll read uh, 13 through 16 here. So Jesus starts pronouncing woes, which are kind of sorrowful judgments, uh, on these different towns around that are seeing the works that he's doing, but aren't turning to him and receiving his peace. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are old cities known for being enemies of God's people, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You should be brought down to Hades. The one, and he turns to his disciples again, 
The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So here, we see that all ministry uh, is personal, but not against us. Uh, we shouldn't take rejection personally or hold bitterness or remember slights done towards us as we're on mission for Jesus. We're representing Jesus, who brings peace to all who would humbly receive it, like children. Uh, but the, to those who reject him proudly, he brings these judgments. I, I don't have the quote. Sorry, I didn't put it up here. Um, but I just want to read to you a little bit, uh, a paragraph from this guy named James R. Edwards that kind of makes sense of these judgments that Jesus is saying. He says, So exceptional is the advent of the kingdom of God in Jesus that Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, places proverbially beyond hope of salvation, can still be saved. And places like Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, places that have heard with their ears, seen with their eyes, and touched with their hands the word of life, will be doomed unless they repent. Uh, so it's a hopeful message in, in, in that uh, the towns in the Old Testament that were known for rejecting God and high-handed rebellion, he's saying, with the coming of Jesus' kingdom, they, if they turn, can find a place in his kingdom. But these towns that might have more of a religious feel to them, that are uh, more spiritual or religious, but are rejecting this Jesus, they will be doomed. And then Jesus gives a powerful judgment against the devil and his demons. In verse 17, he says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, so this is the return journey, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So servants of Christ's peace go to war on Satan and his destruction. Uh, one of my favorite verses for this, my favorite Christmas verse probably, is 1 John 1, 8. The Son of, Ma uh, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Slap that on your Christmas card. But Jesus, born in the flesh, was incarnated to declare war on the devil and all of his destructive works. And so the 70, 72 go out and they come back and they're saying, hey, we had power to cast out demons. We had power over strongholds in the homes that we went to. We saw people delivered and healed Jesus. Uh, and he talks, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall when you guys were out there. We might be familiar with the initial fall of Satan and the final fall of Satan, but Jesus is saying something particular in the present now. As we speak the word of gospel peace to our neighbors, as we give ourselves to works of healing, Satan's power is being pushed back. He's losing his stronghold in the areas where Christ's kingdom advance. So we're supposed to be prayerful, we're supposed to be peaceful and powerful against satanic tyranny. Uh, but war is not an end in and of itself. I think of the hobbits of the Shire just finished the return of the king. When they went back to the Shire, spoiler alert, if you've just seen the movies, I don't know if I could do a spoiler alert because of the joy of the first time reading. I can't do that. Anyways, I can't. Yeah, so um, the hobbits, they are folk who just love relaxing 
and eating and putting fine foods and cheeses in their cellars and inviting people to have scones and have tea and eggs and first breakfast and second breakfast. They do not like war. But when you mess with their peace, they're about to throw down. Mary and Pippin will go hard against you in battle if you mess with their cellars of delicious foods and drink. And so just, just like the hobbits of the Shire, we don't love war in and of itself. Sadly, some Christians just don't get out of that fighting mentality. They forgot their first love and they keep fighting and fighting and fighting. They don't know when to put their swords down and share the goodness of the kingdom over the table of peace and joy. So Jesus acknowledges their joy of pushing back demons. And he said, I saw Satan fall when you guys were out there on mission. But he redirects their joy to the deepest source of joy, belonging to the Father. So let's end here with joyful mission in verses 20 and 24. Let me read that for us. Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that's power over evil, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, uh, wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So this successful mission is exciting. Jesus isn't denying that. There's a lot of excitement and joy when you participate in Jesus' mission to see people go from uh, sickness and disease, whether in body and soul, to restoration and healing, to see people grow as they feed on the gospel, to see people embrace security and strength and community. So there's joy in the mission, but Jesus is redirecting their joy, and he's saying there's a deeper well of joy, and it's in your salvation. The purpose of mission isn't the fighting, but it's enjoying the feast at the table with God and with others in his beautiful world. And salvation here is much bigger than forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus is like the entryway into the kingdom so that we can enjoy his presence with his people at his table. We're saved from something, sin and death and the devil, and we're saved for something, belonging to our Father. And so he says, your names are written in heaven. Your names are safe and secure with God the Father. You belong to me, Jesus is saying, and that is the purpose for true joy. And if we compare these joys, the joy of the mission versus the joy of belonging to God, we see that salvation is a more stable joy. If you put all of your joy eggs, that's a weird way of saying it, in one basket, uh, mission or ministry, your joy will rise and fall. But if you put all of your joy in the top shelf of your name being written in heaven, you will have a steady current of joy. Salvation is a more lasting joy. The mission will end one day. But enjoying God with others will last forever. 
And putting your joy in something outside the mission will make you better in the mission. Let me, let me break that down. Um, if you put your joy in being known by God, waking up every morning, receiving the Father's smile in Christ, and being strengthened by the Spirit, if you put all your joy in belonging to God, then you will be more patient and more forgiving in the mission. But if you put all your joy in the mission, you'll be tempted to strong-arm change, to hurry people up, and you'll get annoyed with them. You might want to manipulate growth, and your mood will depend on how the mission is moving forward. But if we put our joy outside of the mission, it kind of dignifies our motivations for the mission. So Jesus goes on after kind of redirecting their joy to heavenly joy and belonging to God. Jesus turns to pray. So this passage begins with prayer to the Lord of the harvest and it ends with prayer. And, and we're kind of invited into Jesus' prayer life, which is always a special um, privilege. He rejoices. He's bringing us into this joy he talked about. He rejoices in the spirit and he gives the father thanks for two things. In 21, he thanks God for his gracious will to give the kingdom to little children, people who will receive his kingdom like little children and who will hide it from the self-reliant and the proud. The kingdom of God is wide open to anyone who will humbly receive it. And Jesus is thanking the Father for God's gracious will. And then Jesus gives thanks that he himself has the privilege of sharing that kingdom with whoever he wants to. Uh, my, la my life changed for the better when I met this man named Kevin Roach uh, and his oldest son, Sean, in the summer of 2007. Um, <clears throat> I was in high school. I was on summer break. I lived in the South Shore of Boston in a town called Weymouth, um, and I loved basketball. I could just shoot hoops by myself for hours on end. Um, but even that got old every once in a while. And coming from, I was at a boarding school for three years previous, so I didn't have any friends really in my hometown in Weymouth. But somehow I got connected with Kevin and Linda Roach. And Kevin is known for like a Jesus-loving, uh, he's a basketball junkie, high school teacher and coach. And he just brought people in. He had a contagious joy. He had three kids, uh, Kevin did. And his oldest son is named Sean. So we met at the courts one day. And Sean and Kevin just kind of invited me into their family life. Like, Sean would text me like, hey, bro, they had a pool. You want to come swim? And then we'll go to our summer league game. Uh, after games, Kevin would take us out to get fraps, ice cream, whatever. Um, they had me over for lunch. They did loads of my laundry, like my sweaty, gross laundry from basketball. And I really think that Sean, that was the oldest son of the family, loved inviting me into his family because he loved family life together with his father, Kevin. So he had joy of bringing me into his family culture of uh, play and openness and invitation. And I think that's a little glimmer of Jesus' joy, God's son, inviting us in to the Father's joy with the Spirit. Jesus is exhilarated, and he's thanking the Father, saying, Thank you, Father, for your gracious will in letting anyone who humbles themselves like a kid to come into my kingdom. And God, thank you for the privilege that I get to invite Whoever I want, whoever will humble themselves into your kingdom. And so Jesus is filled with this joy. And here we see that mission functions at its best when it's an overflow flow of joy. Think about the people at Trader Joe's. Sales work the best 
when the crew there loves the product uh, and the experience they're having. Another way of putting it is the joy of salvation gives us strength for the mission. If we could pull up a quote here from Michael Reeves. This is in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. I really recommend it. Short book. There's pictures, the only book on the Trinity that I know that has pictures in it. That's fun. But he talks about mission being an overflow of joy from the Trinity out of the Trinity into the world. He says, the Father sent the Son because, how he so, because of how he so loved him and wanted that love to be shared and enjoyed. And the Son went because he so loved his Father and wanted that love to be shared and enjoyed. Hear this. The mission comes from the overflow of love, from the uncontainable enjoyment of the fellowship. So I encourage you, whether it's picking up this daily office and making that a part of your daily rhythm, morning and evening, or remembering back to the last time you really experienced joy in knowing and being known by God, uh, dig deep there, and that will inevitably strengthen your mission. Whether it's getting outside on a run, going hiking, uh, reading a good book, whatever it is for you, listening to music, uh, seek joy in the triune God, and that will overflow into mission. Like I said earlier, this whole passage begins with prayer, and it ends with prayer. At the beginning, Jesus tells us to pray to the Lord of the harvest for more workers. That's what I call laboring prayer. And in the end, Jesus is thanking God for being a gracious God. That's what I call leisurely prayer. And these two types of prayer are meant to mingle while we're on mission. Sometimes we plead with God. We work hard in prayer together and individually for his kingdom to advance in our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. Sometimes we don't ask God for anything at all. We just sit in his presence and say, thank you for your, your goodness, your generosity, God. Thank you, Jesus, for being happy. Uh, like Sean Roach, to invite me into your family. Would you, would you make me like you? And so we have this laboring prayer and this leisurely prayer that we use to carry on the mission. So our mission is to make disciples of Jesus as we restore and renew this fallen, a created yet fallen world. And it's supposed to be characterized by prayer, peace, power, and above all, joy. <coughs> as I reflect on my years at TJ's, Trader Joe's, I really think they took a play out of God's playbook. They made mutual enjoyment of their products their focus. And as a byproduct, the crew members there are genuinely happy and love to share what they're selling you. This is what God is doing with us at his table, at the Lord's table, and as we gather together, as we have mutual delight together, enjoying conversation about everyday type of stuff, laughing, crying together, eating good food, drinking good drink together, God is creating in us a joy that will overflow into mission. So remember that today as we take the bread and cup. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, mission work, um, we don't want to glamorize it. Uh, getting to know people, meeting them where they're at, um, weeping with them when they weep, entering dark areas of our own lives or others, uh, so we pray for your help. Would you send more laborers? Um, would you turn those we're trying to reach into laborers? 
And Lord, we step back and we say thank you for being happy to bring us into your family. Um, I know some of us haven't tasted joy in a long time. Would we taste joy in a fresh way? And for those of us who have, Lord, give us more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.